This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to episode 39 of the world's first Paul Weller fan podcast. I'm Dan Jennings and 10 years ago I gave up my live stream and career as a radio presenter with one big regret. Never getting to interview my hero, the legendary British musician, Paul Weller. This podcast exists purely to solve that issue. Welcome to Desperately Seeking Paul. This week, we head back to 1977 to a story that starts with In the City and The Jam with former Polydor Arts Director, Bill Smith. Not only did he create that famous spray paint jam logo that lives on today, but he also created the covers for five of their albums and 16 singles. Now, we're just days away from the publication of his amazing new book, Cover Stories, Five Decades of Album Art. Bill Smith's studio worked with some of the world's best photographers, illustrators and painters on covers for, amongst others, The Jam, The Cure, Kate Bush, Led Zeppelin, The Rolling Stones, Toya, Genesis Queen and Mike Oldfield. Hey, he's even worked with Gary Barlow. So let's get into it. Bill, thanks for joining me. Pleased to be here. Pleased to be here. I'm really looking forward to this because you're the guy who's responsible for all the jam covers, singles and albums from In The City right through to Absolute Beginners. You're the man who visually brought this band to life for us. That's very nice of you to say. And I like to think that um, not only did it, I maybe sort of start with their career, it also sort of kick-started my career as, a, as, a, as an album cover designer. You were at Polydor before the jam, was that right? I started at Polydor in 1976 as um, what they called a junior art director. And from 1976 um, through until 1978 when I left, I was basically responsible for you know, the output of Polydor Records and their subsidiary labels. There was a couple of jazz labels and obviously um, some German labels as well that, that we did covers for. So I was, from 1976 onwards, I, I would have been working on any cover from Ella Fitzgerald to Peggy Lee 
to The Who, to Rory Gallagher, etc. So a complete mix of different genres of music. Yeah, very diverse, but also big names as well. So as a junior, you're starting out with some pretty big talent there, right? I like to think the junior was was only there temporarily because, you know, it didn't take long for me to be given all pretty much my own work and, and pretty much doing things the way I wanted to do them obviously within the sector that I was in with regard to the sort of commercialism of of the sort of music I was working with. And so much of this is about your ideas coming to life on the cover of albums. And we're going to dig into all this because the album cover is a strange old thing in 2021, isn't it? But we'll take a journey on this on, on this ride because <laughs> back when you started, it was it was such an important thing to to bring this to life on a, on a big frame, a 12 inch. It was beautiful. Absolutely. I mean, you know, the the specialness of a 12 inch cover can, cannot be you know comprehended these days. But to be given a 12 inches of white space and to fill it with something that you hope will convey to the, the, the person picking it up out of the rack is quite an important job and not to be taken too lightly, but also on the other hand, not to be taken too seriously either. Mm. And so the jam, your work covers five album covers, 16 singles between 77 and 1980, three short years of joy, you call it in your book, which is cover stories, the album art of Bill Smith's studio, which we're going to dig into. And obviously I want to kick off with In the City because actually your work on In the City shapes a lot of the jam. It's not just an album cover. It's the graffiti artwork that still lives on. I see badges of this, this logo day in, day out on social media. Tell me about this album, In the City, and how this work um, with the jam first came about. Well, I mean, basically, at the beginning of my book, on my introduction, I, I basically say it all started with the jam logo. Obviously, it started before then, but for me, as an album cover designer, it definitely all started with that cover. And in 1976, Chris Parry, who was the A&R director at uh, Polydor Records, came and said to me, we've just signed this band called The Jam. They're playing a few live gigs. They're playing at the Fulham Greyhound. Why don't you go and see them? See what you think about them. And because um, I want you to work on the covers. Before the, in, During 1976, we'd been visited by various sort of managers and bands in the sort of punk new wave bracket because... At that time, because of the success of The Damned and The Sex Pistols, partly their notoriety, but partly the whole punk movement, every record label, certainly in the UK and definitely in London, wanted to have their own punk band. I was visited by Bernie Rhodes, Malcolm McLaren. You know, they went around every single record label before they decided who they were going to work with. Maybe when those two managers sort of walked into to my studio They sort of maybe didn't like the look of me. I don't know, but it might not have just been that. But obviously they signed to other labels. Mm. So I think Polydor were quite desperate to sign something new. And I think what they signed was the first of really the new wave bands. They, Although they were on the cusp of the punk, really, I think sort of 77 was that division between punk, the heavy punk, if you like, the original punk, and then New Wave, which was, as it says in the title, um, New Wave. And I think the the Jam were the first of those New Wave bands. So I went to see them at Fulham Greyhound, and because I'd seen bands like The Clash and The Sex Pistols and The Damned and various people like that uh, previously in 76... I was sort of blown away by the jam because, A, they looked amazingly cool. B, 
because they were all in the black suits, the, the white shirts, the black ties. But also, actually, they could all play their instruments. Paul could write an amazingly good song. And even the covers they did, you know, weren't thrash and crash. They were basically, you know, they were good covers of old kinks or whatever it was they were doing, basically. And so I really enjoyed them. But almost from the moment I saw them, I sort of knew what I wanted to do with the cover, which was to sort of go for that black and white press now sort of feel to the whole thing. Um, so, you know, the black and white came through sort of straight away. So I knew I wanted the black and white cover, which in its own right caused problems with Polydor because why was I not wanting to use colour? Why was I not wanting to use, you know, a full colour picture of this band? So I had to persuade them that it had to be black and white because of the way I wanted to do it. And I also knew that because they were a new wave band, they weren't in a London scene, I wanted to get this idea that the cover, the sort of cover image came to me that this band, the band had been chased into an underground toilet by either a rival set of fans or some irate punk band that they'd, you know, they'd been better than. So they'd arrived in the, in the toilet. They managed to um, escape their, their chasers and they waited for a little while until everything had calmed down and then they left the toilet. But before they left the toilet, they wanted to, graffitied their name up there. We'd been here. You know, the jam was here, basically. So that was already in my head. Almost immediately, I saw the band and started thinking about it. The other thing was that, of course, at Polydor Records at the time, they had a recording and demo studio upstairs. So almost immediately, the the band came in, they did some demos, and I met them almost immediately. So I saw them in the studio making music, Again, I immediately knew what I wanted to do. So the idea came to do it in an underground toilet. I've commissioned a photographer called Martin Goddard. And talking to Martin, he said, well, it might be a bit difficult to do a proper underground um, toilet because, A, we've got to get in there, we've got to light it. You know, we might, not, we might not be able to get in there. We might only get five minutes or whatever. So why don't we make up to look like a toilet wall in, in my studio? So on the morning of the shoot, we had a couple of um, six by three flats, which are, you know, sort of flat boards. And Martin and I tiled those boards. Um, so, you know, that was my first, my first art direction job was basically t- tiling a wall. Then Martin said, oh, I think we should grout it. And I said, well, actually, Martin, I think it looks really, really good because it looks like graph paper. And that adds to the sort of whole graphic quality. I didn't fancy grouting it anyway, but um, <laughs> it, it, looked, it, it looked really good as just a sort of black and white graph paper. So, you know, again, almost like a drawing, which I liked the sort of whole graphic sort of approach to it. The band came in, they got ready, put their suits and everything on. We sat them in place. Martin did some lighting, checked to sort of focusing, did a couple of Polaroids. Everybody looked at it. Yeah, it looks great. Fantastic. They stepped out, had a cup of tea or whatever. I stepped in and with a black can of spray paint, literally sprayed the logo. I didn't really have much in my head in terms of it was a sort of, did they say it's done by rote? It was almost in my head before I even knew what I wanted to do. So literally it was like I'd run up and done it and run away again. Luckily, it turned out right because there was only one tiled wall and there was only one can of spray paint, basically. So I knew I had to get it right. And luckily, it turned out all right. Had you ever sprayed anything before? No, 
the first go. First go is on it this. Was the first go, yeah, it was the first go. And luckily, all the planets were in line and um, it looked okay. They stepped back in. We shot three rolls of film and then a couple of rolls of film with them all sort of individual shots of them in colour against another bit of the tiled wall. And then they went. And then so I said to Martin, it'd be really great if the band have left the toilet, but that, you know, someone's coming in and go, oh, I hate the jam and started smashing it up. So basically I took a hammer to the tiled wall and started smashing it up and then put sprayed again underneath it in the city because I thought that's really nice. It's quite good. And then we basically that was what we put together for the album cover and obviously for the first single bag. Wow. That still lives on, though. That, so that graffiti logo still lives on as well. The, the little tag under the M, you still see that on Jam stuff now. Who would have thought that Rush job would play such an important part in the band's image? Because it also became like the backdrop to the gigs and things. Yeah. Yeah. Well, again, I mean, obviously, having done it once, you know, completely improvised, they then said, oh, we're doing this. We're doing some gigs at, um, I think there was the Rainbow or something like that with the Clash, etc." could you respray the logo on a white backdrop so that we can hang it behind us on the... So I had to go and do a huge, great version of it. Obviously, all slightly different. And, of course, taking it out of the tiles, it became just a very, very graphic black and white, very hard edge. Again, just a a really, really simple logo. But in essence... I suppose it's a good logo because it's lasted and it says what it is. And as you know, there was um, uh, the uh, exhibition, first of all, in um, in London and then in Liverpool, full of sort of damn merchandising and, and, and things from fans and all that sort of thing. You know, there were pencil cases with... The jam logo people had copied. There were backs of exercise books that were in the exhibition, etc. And yes, you know, even today you still see people using using that logo. So yeah, yeah. you know, incredibly, somebody said to me once, you know, there's been like two hundred thousand pin badges have been sold of the jam logo on a little one inch pin badge. And I just thought, well, it'd be really nice if I'd got a penny for each one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah, exactly. <laughs> that logo gets used on the singles for Modern World, Tube Station, until you kind of change the look again for, for all mod cons, which we'll touch on in a bit. But when you come to the second album, you're having to still be... I, mean, I always find this amazing about the, the type of job that you do in, in art direction, because you're an ideas factory. You're constantly having to think about a new look and feel. And when that second album comes around within six months, there's bang, there's another mm-hmm. album. Right, we need a new look for the band what are you going to go with how did this is the modern world come about it's so unusual to get two albums out in one year i think that was if memory serves me correctly i don't think the first album did as well as everybody hoped so they wanted to get an album out you know based on a couple of the singles had done okay as you know during that uh, that time it was quite a single sort of industry, even sort of 76 and 77. Obviously, picture singles bags were very new. And it was it was even before the 12 inch. The 12 inch came, I think, a year or so later. And so everything was then based on image, image, image. Of course, everybody wanted it not to look, nothing to look the same, really. So the idea for This Is The Modern World, I became slightly sort of postmodernist about the whole thing. And, you know, looking at the lyrics, and again, I was still allowed to go and see the band and listen to what they were doing, you know, demoing or in the middle of a recording or something. And, and to be honest, that's been very, very important my whole 
sort of design life with record covers is to basically, I like to hear the music first and then, and I like to hear the music if I can, as it's being done, because you just get a feel for what they're trying to say. And then it's your job to then push that across, you know, because basically it's a product within a product in a way that, you know, the record is, you know, an abstract product. So with the packaging of that product, you've got to be, I think you've got to be able to say something or try and intrigue people or try and get people to see what's going on inside that cover. And of course, the other thing is, unlike an awful lot of other product packaging, that packaging stays with it its whole life. It's got to be able to have a life of its own that, again, like I say in the book, if 40 years later someone picks out you know, the jam in the city cover, I'd like to think they know what's happening or going to happen when they put that music on. That's what I, that's how I've always felt about an album, an album cover. The single bag is slightly different, of course, because it's much more, um, it's sort of much more ephemeral. It's much more, you know, it's a, it's a quicker turnaround. You've got sort of two or three months and you live with it for a little while and then there's the next one and so on and so on. So with This Is The Modern World, I knew I had to get away from what we'd done within the city because I thought we'd already sort of, we'd staked our claim, this is what we are, this is who we are, this is what we look like. So um, I wanted to find a place that I felt um, was postmodernist. So underneath the Westway was sort of almost perfect for me. And the photographer I used was a guy called Gerard Mankiewicz, and Gerard goes back a long way. He was shooting the Rolling Stones, um, small faces in the sort of 60s and into the 70s. And so I said to Paul, I want to use this guy called Gerard Mankovic. He did the small faces and he's, you know, he was jumping for joy because, you know, the small faces, I think, were probably Paul's favourite band of all time, alongside The Who, of course. Um, so Gerard and I searched around and we found a really nice spot underneath the Westway um, with the tower blocks, you know, you could see the tower blocks in the distance. But I liked the sort of angles that the um, the Westway under, uh, overpass created. The band turned up, not in their black and white suits. So obviously that was that that was all over, um, <laughs> and came in sort of you know very much in civvies. I think Gerard was fairly underwhelmed by what they were wearing, but that's what they were wearing. So this is what we work with. But Paul was wearing a sort of a greyish jumper. And I said to Paul, well, it's, you know, it's a little, have you not got anything else? Because it's, it's, it's a little bit flat. And he said, no. But he said, I've seen a picture where um, I think Pete Townsend's wearing um, either a jacket or something with some arrows on it. I said, oh, that's great. We'll do that then. So, and I, and I also thought that it was quite nice. The sort of arrows were sort of, um, again, a bit postmodernist and a bit sort of direction creation, all that sort of the reaction. So with a bit of gaffer tape, I sort of put these one upward arrow and one downward arrow on his uh, jumper. And again, they stood in the shot. We took a few shots and, and Gerard used a sort of flash and daylight technique which is very sort of contrasted. So you've got those really strong black lines of the underpass and then the quite strong sort of colouring of the, of the band and what they're wearing, et cetera. I thought, again, it was making a statement about what was on that, what was on that record, you know, the sort of the lyrical content of this, you know, the modern world seemed to sort of sum it up quite nicely. 
And of course, then on the back, I use a live shot. So again, this band can play. This is what they do. This is this is how they are. That fantastic shot of Paul jumping up in the air, which you know is, is Pete Townsend impersonations. It worked really well. So again, I was very pleased, very pleased with that one. And again, to do two completely different covers for the same band within you know a new logo, um, you know a, a new look, etc was really pushing both me to the limits, I thought, as, a, as an art director and, as you say, as an ideas man, Yeah. but also pushing the band into new areas, which obviously Paul was always doing. Always, Every single album is different for the jam. So every single time we had to come up with something different. You mentioned the amount of singles as well. So not every single is on an album. There's this constant conveyor belt in a way of, of material that's coming your way to create for and to leap into all mod cons which was just a, a year later 78 and then setting sun 79 you mentioned in the book about how important collaboration is to the creation of an album cover and this is a collaboration between the musician the designer and the record company and did you feel at all mod cons and setting suns that you were all bang on point you all knew exactly how to work together were you, were you in a bit more of a groove at that point i think so and um by the time by the time i was doing not all my cons but certainly setting suns and then sound effects obviously I'd left Polydor Records I was a freelance art director stroke designer working for the band first and then the record label second and almost from the moment I left Polydor I became very much I'm working for the band I know you as a record company are paying me but I answer to the band first and you second because it if I go back to in the city, you'll you'll probably won't even notice it because hardly anybody does. But basically, even the Polydor logo uh, on the front cover, again, who puts their record label <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> logo on the front cover of an album these days? Hardly anybody. You know, it, this, that goes back to Blue Note and all that sort of thing. You know, the, the record companies were king. So I basically had to persuade, I don't know, the managing director in Germany that, I really wanted to just use a black and white logo for Polydor, but it's red and black. Yeah, I know, but it doesn't, it, it, all that will happen is that will really sing out and it will just look horrible. No, no, our logo can't look horrible. It's perfect, our logo. Anyway, they acquiesced and I managed to get just a black and white logo. But so from that point on, it was just sort of right, well, that's what I want to do. I'm working for the band, you as the record label will basically have to accept what I do. And in a lot of instances further on in my career, I became the sort of mouthpiece for the band to the record company because, oh, we don't talk to the record company. It's our own record company, so whatever you want to do, it's fine, et cetera, et cetera. With the jam, um, it became very much, right, I'll work with Paul. And again, the career of a designer and a band it's quite an interesting sort of career path, if you, if, you, if you see what I mean. With the jam, it was amazing because obviously to do that much work in such a short time is a huge amount of work and a huge amount of pressure, not only on the band themselves, because they've got to really trust their designer and their art director, but also vice versa, the designer has got to feel that the band trusts him. So up until, I'd say up until Setting Suns, it was very much 
Paul would sort of suggest a few things. I'd suggest a few things. We'd come up with the ideas sort of together, just talking about what we were going to do. So all mod cons was, I, I'm not quite sure where it came from. It was just my idea of a sort of a non-studio portrait shop because we hadn't really done a sort of studio shot, so to speak. So it was quite nice to do that as the sort of the main image. And also it was Paul's idea that he really liked the immediate record label itself. And so he wanted to use the lettering. Now, of course, the word immediate is the only way that that was ever written in that particular font style. So I had to sort of redo it to make the jam and then all mod cons I'd redraw basically some of the some of the letters to make that up. Again, I love the idea of the um, the simplicity of the three of them in the room, not particularly all together, sort of you know holding hands and you know arms round shoulders, you know like a normal band sort of shot would be, but to be slightly separated, three very very much very in- individuals you know, in this band. And then, of course, on the back, the idea of the sort of, you know, where they were standing is what they were playing. And then what they were playing on was a little radio. It summed it all up quite nicely to me. And then Paul's very, very strong about wanting a collage of Paul's favourite things, basically. So we made up this collage of Paul's favourite things. And then, of course, the whole mod thing with the with the Lambretta Vespa uh, exploded diagram of how to mend one of these, how to mend a scooter, basically, made up the whole package. So not only did we have something saying something on the outside of the sleeve, but we also had something saying something on the inside to give an overall picture. Are you aware that the inside and the design also um, influence Alan McGee? Are you aware of the Alan McGee story? No, I'm, not, I'm not aware of the Alan McGee, no. Oh, okay. what's, the, what's the Alan McGee so there's a bit in, there's a bit in your album cover where one of Paul's favourite things is a single or something from the, a band called The Creation. Oh, yeah. Yeah? That's is where, is that really that's how where, he made a Creation Records? That's where Creation Records came from, which obviously then we wouldn't have Oasis without all mod cons. <laughs> True, true. <laughs> but of course, there was the other single, which with the arrows, that again, he said to me, creation, reaction, I've forgotten where the other one is. Direction. Yeah, direction, that's it. So that's where the arrows thing came from. And of course, that sort of came from this is the modern world and those arrows, very postmodernist, et cetera, et cetera. Love it. It all comes full circle. Um, it all comes full circle. There is method in some of this madness, I'm sure. <laughs> there's a period where, and I think it's coming back, but there's a period where we've lost that gatefold. This is one of the things I want to talk to you about, about the power of an album cover that we don't get in an MP3 world. And you certainly do not get that digging into the cover, the lyrics, the inside, opening up this beautiful package. Uh, that must drive you insane as an art guy. Well, you kind of go, yeah, I, mean, oh, I mean, we've lost so much there. Obviously, I'm relative well very very old but um when I first started sort of listening to music and and early mid 60s through to the 70s when I was sort of developing as a person at the age of 15 basically I got so into music but I'd not just got into music I got if you again you probably don't go back that far but in most record stores there used to be sort of listening booths yeah so you would order your record Okay, and then a week or so later, you'd pay your five shillings. A week or so later, your record would come into the shop. They'd let you know. You would go to the shop. You would take your brand new record and you would be able to go into a listening booth, take the record out, put it on a, a record player, 
put some headphones on and listen to your music, which I loved, but I also loved holding the album cover in my hands. If there was an inner bag of starting to read the lyrics, I'm saying, this is what I'm hearing, et cetera, et cetera. So I sort of fell in love not only with music, but also with the cover itself. So luckily, by the age of 15, I pretty much knew what I wanted to do, which would be a record sleeve designer. Sadly, I don't think anybody thinks that's what they should do these days. <laughs> I was very, very lucky to, to hit upon it. I wasn't that great art, but I was lucky that my art teacher at school pushed me through and said, you know, go to Saturday morning art classes. We'll do a history of art A-level and then ordinary art A-level alongside your history A-level. He really pushed me. So from 15, I sort of knew what I wanted to do. I could come up with ideas. I could sort of put visuals together. So I passed all my A-levels and I managed to get to college. And then from college, it was just a, a couple of different, couple of small steps to get to being a record sleeve designer in a proper record company. Since then, I've been doing pretty much what I wanted to do my whole life and been very happy with it. Of course, it's slightly different now. Of course, I'm still working on different sleeves and stuff, but it's sad not to work on a 12-inch cover whenever I possibly can. And so, yeah, I, I think in the days of MP3 and streaming, it's very difficult to get anything from those tiny little postage stamps. Yeah, And so I feel sad for anybody who's trying to design for just that, I suppose, at the moment, because we... I found it difficult going from 12-inch to CD even, you know, suddenly going from 12 inches to four and a bit inches, you suddenly can't do anything. Suddenly, oh, we've got to make the type a little bit more easy to read. Oh, you've got to put the title on, et cetera, et cetera, you know. So it became a a completely different sort of industry, I think, sort of, you know, late, mid-90s onwards, really. And it's interesting when you look at Fat Pop, so Paul Weller's new album that's coming out in May, obviously the design of that has to work in social media. It has to work in Twitter. It has to work as GIFs um, and the 12-inch and the T-shirt and everything else. It's really interesting to see that whole approach. And I think, and you mentioned CDs, we were conned, my friend. See, I had it all on vinyl. It was beautiful. I was told that actually this, this stuff wouldn't last. Here's the CD. It won't scratch. There's nothing, you know, it, it's indestructible. So I got rid yeah. of the vinyl. I upgraded onto CD, bottom up it. And oh. now I'm spending most of my life going back through, you know, re-getting the vinyls because I miss, I miss, and actually researching this podcast. It's too hard on a CD trying to find everybody who's played on the albums and this it's impossible. Whereas the yeah. album, the LP, the vinyl is a beautiful thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's to, to a certain extent that while I was doing the book, I had the same sort of situation because although I have got everything we ever did, unfortunately, I didn't archive it that well. A lot of things I had to rebuy as 12-inch vinyl, mostly through Discogs, who keep wanting me to, um, you know, put a, a review in. I don't know what to – how can I review something? Well, actually, I did this, and that's why I need <laughs> Obviously, I like the album, but I also like the album sleeve, and that's pretty much what I'm buying it for. And on a couple of, a couple of things, to the sellers, I've said, look, I only really want the cover. And they sort of sent back, you know, loads and loads of question marks and all that sort of thing. So what is this weirdo? I'm going to be um, saying the same thing because I've got the CDs. But actually what I want is the is the artwork. I want that wraparound because it's a, a to put it up on the wall. It's a beautiful thing. Let's be fair. It's not been a bad career post-jam either. So The Cure, Genesis, Queen... 
Kate Bush. I love the album cover of it was the greatest hits. What's it called? Whole story. The whole story. You oh, created right, yes. Hounds of Love. You did Sensual World. The Stones. Alison Moyet. You before. I mean, this, I could go on and on and on. And the book covers <laughs> loads of it. Even Gary Barlow, my, which my missus loves. I mean, what what a career! You must be so proud when you when you're pulling this book together and looking back at that work. Whether you've had to rebuy it off Discogs or whatever, you must be so proud of the stuff that's still out there in the world and people still enjoy and consume. Absolutely. I mean, obviously, the seventy stories in there. I, to be honest, they're just some. I've done hundreds of sleeves, you know, worked with tens and tens of great photographers, illustrators, painters, etc. And also the designers that work with me on my own studio. The collaboration is so important. You know, it's great to it's great to come up with ideas in the first instance. It's even better to come up with ideas with other people that sort of think along the same sort of lines as you, but give another little input. And that's the same with bands. We go back to the jam and from sort of, as I say, from setting suns onwards, it became, these are the ideas, Bill, I've got. What have you got? And then I'd come up with something and, yeah, that's not bad, but I like this bit. So it became a bit more of a sort of, not an argument and not a discussion, but a slightly more, well, look, I'm Paul Weller and, you know, this is my band and this is, I think, the way I want us to go, And which is fair enough. That's cool. That's how they want to do it. So it sort of ended up with um, this is so with like, for instance, with Setting Suns, he gave me the back cover as he said, oh, I've been working with these other designers and this, this is these illustrators and this is what they've come up with. It's a sort of a concept album. Um, about Britain and the war and, you know, this band of brothers, et cetera, et cetera. So he's, he couldn't think of anything to go with the front cover. So working with Andrew Douglas, who I've been working with for, you know, forever now, and did, we did so many, you know, in the book, there's so many of the covers that we worked on together. And also in the book, it's not just my stories about the covers, it's the stories from the photographer's point of view, some from the the band members' point of view, et cetera, et cetera. So it's very important that you listen to people and you come with they come up with ideas. And if their ideas are better than yours, that's fine. I don't have a problem with that. In Genesis' case, they never came up with an idea, so it was my it was always me coming up with ideas. It, it, you know, either with a lucky shot or it just happened to it happened to be right, and it sort of fitted with what they were doing. Kate was slightly different. She had very strong ideas. She, you know, she not only controlled her music and the way she wanted that to be put together our whole career, but also the way she wanted to be portrayed, you know, uh, on stage, on TV, in the videos, and obviously on her covers. So that's great. That my job is easy because then all I've got to do is hopefully put it together in in a way that suits the idea of the image, et cetera, et cetera. So the jam, it got to the point where, for instance, Sound Effects, which was the sort of the last album we worked on, basically Paul was in, they were recording uh, at the time, I don't know where it was, and obviously the, in the recording studio was a whole bunch of BBC Sound Effects records, which were albums full of sound effects that radio programs would use as backgrounds, you know, honking of horns, a bus stopping, um, you know, grass being cut, et cetera, et cetera. So I went to the studio and Paul gave me this BBC sound effects album. He scrolled out where it said the BBC and said, I want that to be the jam. He scrolled out, I forget what it was, but said number 80. And he wanted it to be sound effects rather than sound effects. 
which is great. Fantastic wordplay, of course. Yeah. Paul's brilliant at that. And gave it to me and said, right, I want the cover like this. And I said, fine, what's the lyrical content? Give me some song titles and then we'll make the pictures. So that's the collaboration. And that's and then I went to the photographer, Martin Goddard. I took some pictures and we sort of made up that that montage of different pictures. And with Setting Suns, like I said, you know, Andrew Douglas, we talked about something from the war, maybe a statue, maybe, you know. And in the end, we, uh, Andrew found this lovely little statuette, which was obviously only about, you know, 12 or 13 inches high. Basically, it meant he could be front onto it. So rather than a big structure that you'd have to look up at, um, he was actually able to get it front on. And then, again, it was just my idea to sort of put the sort of the sky background behind it and to emboss it so it had a sort of a relief feel to it, which is sort of a bit graveyard, you know, a bit gravestone. And again, we wouldn't have found that without Andrew going out and searching through the Imperial War Museum, et cetera, et cetera. Talking to Paul, thinking about what he wanted to do, him showing me the back, me listening to some of the music, you know, that's, that's where it all comes to. And then it's my job, I suppose, as the designer to then put it together in a way that hopefully will make a passerby go into a record store. If they didn't know the jam, Hopefully they'd pick it up and go, oh, this is interesting. I wonder, wonder what this is about. And that's really, that's my job and has been for the last 40-odd years. As you do that flick, a little flick gesture, my heart skips a beat <laughs> at missing being in a record shop. You, that, that... Again, that's, that's how I started. Yeah. That's how this whole thing started. And, you know, it's sort of, I want to make someone else feel the way I did when I did that. And pick something out yeah. and put it on. Oh, I want to put, I want to listen to this because I think there's something interesting going on inside here. That's the album cover's job is to make you want to listen. And you don't always get it right, but sometimes when you do get it right, and a million people buy a record or something, you think, oh, well, that's done all right. too bad. He's done, all, done right. all right. Did you have a favourite jam piece of work, either album or single? I'm afraid it has to be in the city, which is a bit boring and a bit silly, but, you know, it has to be the starting point for me and the starting point for the jam in a way. Yeah. So is there an album cover that you've seen that isn't your work that you wish you had done? There's loads. There's always someone that's done, some, and, and you know, something something that I wish I'd done or wish been, I wish I'd been that clever or whatever, <laughs> and probably too many to mention, unfortunately, but, you know, Anything, I love Dark Side of the Moon. I like the simple things in life, Dan. Yeah. I like the simple <laughs> things in life. That goes with my album covers. I love the blur sleeve, park life. When I, you know, when you look at a sleeve and it tells you something, that's all I need. That's all I need, really. I would have loved to have done park life. I would have loved to have been able, clever enough to think a cow on the front cover of an album cover without anything else on it would be brilliant, you know. So... I loved um, Stanley Rudd. Well, yeah. that's Peter Blake, you see. Brilliant. The guy who designed the um, Sergeant Peppers. You know, that goes back. I mean, that's Paul, I think, with his knowledge of music and musical history, etc. I also wish I'd done, for instance, I wish I'd been clever enough to come up with the White Album for the Beatles. You know, again, one of my favourite pop artists, Richard Hamilton, was sort of echoing one of my favourite painters, who's a guy called Malevich, who was a Russian constructivist who did paint a painting called White, which was literally just a white canvas, which at the time of 19, whenever it was, 1918, 1919, I can't remember when it was, was so dynamic and so different. 
that it completely sort of turned, you know, fine art on its head, basically. Right. And I think the Beatles' White Album, the cleverness of just in blind embossing the word the Beatles and then having them each individually numbered made that album cover a piece of art and a limited edition piece of art because only that one had that number on it and another one had another number on it. So those are the sort of things that I try to live up to in a way and have tried to live up to, to be as clever and as creative and as coming up with those sort of ideas my entire career, I suppose. Well, you've done pretty well, Bill, I have to say. You've done pretty well. It's a beautiful book. The time of the release of the podcast, people can pre-order. One of the things I find when you buy these books is that you have to read them with like, almost like snooker referees' gloves. They're so beautiful, these productions. I've got Soul Deep. I've got Simon Haffron's one from last year as well. Yeah, that's a really good book. Oh, I don't, I don't feel I can look at them, though. I, a, the kids are not allowed anywhere near me in case they spill something <laughs> on it. But you just they're so delicate and beautiful, and I know that your work is going to be exactly the same for me, so it's a joy, so thank you. I have two final questions before you go, Bill. One is yeah. you're allowed one Paul Weller song for the rest of your life. It could be The Jam, The Style Council, or Solo. Which one's it going to be? Can I not? I have two. <laughs> Let's see what they are. English Rose, probably the best folk song, British folk song of the last 70 years. So, and I like Melancholy, and that's just a fantastic song. That's not mentioned on your artwork. It's not it's mentioned on, on my it's on, it's on the album, but it's not mentioned on the artwork. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, for, so from that era, and then from his solo, I, I love True Meanings as an album, and I think Aspects is probably the best track on that, so I'd probably go for that. And if you want me to make a decision about which of those two, I'd probably have to go with English Rose because, I don't know, it's just got such a feeling. It's just a great, great song. Yeah, I could listen to it on a desert island. It would probably be one of my desert island discs because it just, it brings back things. And I love that about any sort of music. So it brings back those times and, you know, when I was young and... (laughs) I, I look forward to listening to your chat with Lauren Laverne on Desert Island Discs about that. That would be lovely. Um, you mentioned True Meanings. I think the album, when you talk about simplicity of album covers as well, the album cover's lovely, I think. Yes. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that's, you know, it's sort of, uh, what I quite like about it is it's sort of almost, it's sort of Paul in a private club somewhere, which I sort of quite, I know it would be completely against what Paul was standing for, et cetera, but there's something about the sort of, the you know, an English club feel to it that I quite like and it's a great photograph as well and he looks you know I mean you know the guy's cool there's no question about it he's a cool dude and um that comes across in pretty much everything everything he does with his visuals and and certainly with his music I mean to still be doing what he's doing this far into a career is pretty amazing yeah, it's incredible. And he, it? wants, he wants to change. He wants to change each time as well, which is lovely. Constantly moving forward. Final question then. The yeah. purpose of this podcast is for me to be able to meet Paul, have a conversation, a chat over a cup of tea at Black Barn Studios. What one question should I ask him? Is there anything that you want to get off your chest that you feel I should ask the man? <laughs> um, I'd like to think he'd, he'd appreciate that, um, you know, we both moved on and we're both where we are. Uh, you know, I like to look forward. I like to think about what's going to happen next rather than what happened. So the book is nice for me 
in the recollections and the going backwards, et cetera. But I do like looking forward, and I think Paul's the same. So I'd probably talk to talk to him about what he was what he was going to come up with next. Lovely. Bill Smith, this has been a joy. Thank you so much for your time, man. Thanks a lot. Been great. Thank you. My thanks to Bill Smith once again, and do check out the show notes for this podcast to find out more on that fabulous Cover Stories book. Next up, I chat to Damon Minchella, bass player extraordinaire, summed up perfectly on Twitter by Britpop Memories, who says... He's probably the best bass player of his generation. We chat Ocean Colour Scene and Paul Weller Band, the 90s, the noughties, plus a whole heap of fabulous music since then as well. Make sure you follow or subscribe to get it first. Don't forget, you can share this episode on social media. It's a busy place, so the more you can help to shout about this podcast, the more it helps us to find new listeners to this show. And ultimately, the more it helps to reach that end goal. You can find me on Twitter at WellerFanPod or on Instagram and Facebook is Paul Weller Fan Podcast. I'll see you next time. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.